Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, three weeks from the budget, Nationals Finance spokesperson Nicola Willis is with us live. Then a massive change in the way we treat people who are overweight or obese. And we're wanting people who are ready to uh, ex accept meal replacements for a period of 12 weeks. And AUT's Vice-Chancellor shares his concerns about New Zealand's tertiary sector. Many of the universities, most of them, um, in very difficult places um, and some hard decisions will have to be made. We'll have that interview shortly. But first, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says the government's planning a no-frills budget with a focus on fiscal restraint and the cost-of-living crisis. His comments coincide with research published by IRD this week which showed the richest New Zealand families paying much lower rates of tax across all incomes than most New Zealanders. National Party Finance Spokesperson and Deputy Leader Nicola Willis is here with us live. Tēnāku, welcome to Q&A. Good morning, great to be here. So the poorest Kiwis don't pay tax, the richest Kiwis don't pay very much tax. Why does National support tax settings in which the average earner, middle class New Zealanders, are paying the most tax? Well, Jack, as we've said for a long time now, we support reducing the tax paid mm. by middle income earners. I do want to come back to the report that came out this week, though, because there's been a headline figure bandied mm. about saying that the wealthy pay less tax. But let's be careful to look at what's actually behind that figure, because what that figure presumes as income is not income as you or I would describe it. It's not money that's gone into a bank account. It's simply saying the value of assets, the value of businesses mm. or houses has gone up in value. And that's not been the way that we've taxed in New Zealand. Certainly uh, people whose properties have gone up in value don't pay a tax on that no. uh, each year. But when you look at income, actual income, mm. the wealthy are paying more like 30% tax, which compares with a middle-income New Zealander of more like 18%. We're talking about capital gains here, aren't we? Let's just, let's just right. not, not, not get any, look for any other fancy terms. We're talking about capital gains. And, and, and the report suggests that the wealthiest New Zealanders make a lot of money from capital gains, at least on paper, but when they, when they realise those capital gains, they don't pay tax on those in the same rates that New Zealanders, other New Zealanders pay tax on their income. Well, capital gains are, of course, something that affect a lot of New Zealanders, mm. not just the 311 the study looked at. You so, know? so, yep, we'll get to that in a moment. So back to my question, though, because you, you didn't quite answer it. Why does national support tax settings in which the average earner, so middle-class mm -hmm. New Zealanders, are paying the most tax as a percentage of their Well, income? I reject the premise of your question because when you compare the tax paid by wealthy New Zealanders on their real income, it's around 30% in average effective terms. For middle-income New Zealanders... Does that include capital gains? To, uh, no, it doesn't. Right, OK. So, so you're talking about income, like, like money that we would be paid as a salary? Money that goes into a bank so account is available to be all spent, income. Jack. Yeah, available all income. to be spent, because the capital gains, if it's in a business that mm. you're not planning to sell tomorrow, and so, so what happens when the business is sold? Lose, is it? What, what happens when the business is sold? Well, when the business is sold... Do they pay tax on that? No, they don't. Right, OK. But nor do you uh, pay a tax if you sell your dairy, uh, if you sell your... Uh, um, if you sell your KiwiSaver shares, mm. those things don't attract uh, extra taxes either. But and our concern with uh, a capital gains tax, mm. which is where this seems to all be going, I don't know why Labor would be floating these reports mm. if they aren't planning more taxes, uh, is that it actually traps a huge group of middle-income New Zealanders. I think about people who've mm. spent their working lives building up their small business. People have built up that little nest egg, right. who've, who've built up that second property uh, that they've used as a rental. 
and we worry that slapping them with another tax sends exactly the wrong message about what we want to happen in New Zealand, which is we want people investing, mm. we want them saving, uh, we want them putting aside a bit for the future. Capital gains tax don't stop people from investing in the United States, do they? Well, interestingly, capital gains tax in the United States, as you say, exists, but when you look at their effective marginal mm. tax rates for wealthy people, uh, there's not much of a big difference between us and them because what you see happens in the United States is that some years the value of assets declines, mm. as New Zealanders have experienced in this past couple of years. Mm. And that becomes a way of writing off tax obligations mm. against those declines. So this doesn't Australia? just go one way, it goes no, the that, other that's way right. too. Of course you don't pay a capital gains tax if you've made a capital loss. That's, that's the, right, that's and the so does, yeah. does the taxpayer end up having to refund people yeah. uh, who've made a loss? And there's some real unfairness so that too, you, you've said the government's to blame for the wealthiest New Zealanders making billions in untaxed capital gains during COVID-19. Quote, it's the result of Labor's deliberate, uh, deliberate monetary and fiscal policy decisions. Mm. So if, if that was the government's fault, all of that money they made over COVID-19, why shouldn't the government change its tax settings and get some of that money back? It's too late now, Jack. And what, actually why? what they should have done... Well, because why is what, it too late? Because what they should have done... No, no why, why is it too late, though? Because it would be completely wrong to retrospectively say we're going to claw back income that you earned on the basis that it wasn't being taxed. But if the, if the capital value of um, businesses or properties has increased over a period of time, when they realise those capital gains, why shouldn't they pay the tax? That, because today, Jack, if you were to redo that study that the IRD did mm. between 2015 and 2021, you'd get a totally different result. Because as you know, asset values, house prices have declined quite rapidly. And, and as so you know, come up with you, quite you'd a only pay a capital today. gains tax when capital gains have been realised. Well, um, I don't know that, actually, because I saw David Parker on television during the week and he was talking a lot mm. about unrealised capital gains. So I think that's a big presumption to make. I think the real issue here, Jack, is mm. we're having a theoretical discussion. Mm. The government has not been clear about what they're going to do on tax. All they've done, actually, is throw some numbers at the wall. Mm. I think they have an obligation to say, this is what we're looking at, this is what we're considering, and this is what we're going to do. Because at the moment, there is a huge amount of uncertainty. Well, I think I... You, you may well be right on that point. And, and, and rest assured, we will be very clear in our questioning of the government as to their position exactly. But speaking of clarity, uh, you were John Key's senior advisor during his first term in government, weren't you? That's right. Did he raise any taxes during that term? Uh, during that term in government, uh, he he did a tax switch uh, in which he... Right. That's uh, what David Parker's been talking about, of well, course. But again, no, David no, Parker back, back has to, not set let's out talk about your record. taxes he wants to reduce. So, 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 so had John Key campaigned on raising GST during that time? John Key had also not campaigned on there being a uh, global financial crisis and mm. the Canterbury earthquakes. Yeah. So the context changed significantly. I don't think uh, the government campaigned on having COVID-19, did they? No. They didn't, but they did make deliberate choices clear the way they responded No, no, because you, you, you've suggested over the last 24 hours that the government is planning a secret tax. I, so, I believe they are. You believe they are? Yes, I okay. have been told by more than one source that a proposal has already gone to Cabinet, okay. which would impose a wealth tax on unrealised capital gains. Who's and if that source? is the case, I'm not going to reveal my source. You understand that better than anyone as a journalist. Mm. But 
We, let's be clear about what. No, no, no. I, I want to ask you about your, your record here. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll ask the government those questions. Them. So, given you are the one raising the spectre of secret taxes, mm -hmm. but you were the senior advisor to a prime minister who raised GST despite having previously ruled it out, why should we trust you? Why should we trust me? Yeah. Because I've been really clear about what National is going to do on tax. Just, just as John consistent. Key, when you were his senior advisor, was really clear about not raising GST until he came to government when he raised GST. Well, I think New Zealanders uh, made their judgement and re-elected him accordingly. So that was for New Zealanders to judge, and I don't think that uh, they judged him poorly for that you, choice. Because what he delivered yeah. was something I believe in. Which is raising allowed, taxes despite having ruled it out. He allowed New Zealanders to keep more of what they earned. He reduced taxes for working people. That's overdue in this country. Well, not, not GST though. He, he raised GST though. I've accepted that, Jack. Yeah. The point is this. No, no, we, that, that's the point. He, he, he said he wasn't going to raise GST. He raised GST, which disproportionately affects people on lower incomes because, as a percentage of their spending, they make uh, they spend much more GST compared to wealthy in New Zealand. But today, I don't. Let, let me ask this about tax. You said you're going to remove the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax? Yes. Do you still support congestion charging? We are talking to the government at the moment about a proposal for congestion charging, and we want to be constructive about that. Right. Because as we look to the future for New Zealand, it's clear uh, that fuel taxes are going to have a limited life because more mm. and more of us are driving electric cars, are choosing to use public transport. So we need to find other ways to fund our roads, to fund our transport So, so that is a potential congestion tax or traffic tax that you would consider well, if, what you're we in, would if you're in government? Well, what we would prefer mm. uh, is if a congestion charge was going to be introduced, uh, that the quid pro quo would be uh, the removal of the regional right. fuel tax. So, we, so, we so that's a tax that you would... I, I mean, I've been on your, your party's tax calculator on your website mm. and you've shown how much... New Zealanders or Aucklanders will save by losing the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax. You haven't included a congestion tax, which is something well, you appear to we be don't, considering. Because we're not currently uh, proposing that as part of the way we will fund our fiscal plan. Right, but well, 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 you have, you have on that calculator, no timeline, though. No timeline has been put forward. I think New Zealanders would want us mm. to be constructive about a conversation mm. about the medium and long term of transport funding here. Mm. And we're prepared to be bipartisan about that. Uh, and to be very transparent about that. But the government, to be fair, are the ones with the officials, the analysis yeah. about when this is needed, how much it will generate, etc. And I haven't seen all of that information. Did, did any national MPs get surveyed for the research? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but to be fair, I haven't asked, and mm. nor would I. Some of the richest New Zealanders have made significant donations to National. A quick look at your donors from last year reveals multiple rich listers, 24 donators, uh, donors donated $2.3 million. How have their interests affected your position on tax? They have not affected my position on tax. Why should we believe that? Because you just need to look at what we are focused on. We have You're focused on said, not changing the tax settings for the richest New Zealanders. Let me tell you what I'm focused on, rather than you making a well, presumption that's, that's, about it. That, that's I'm true, though, isn't on it? How can I ensure that New Zealanders who are really suffering through the cost of living can keep more of what they earn? How can I ensure mm. the tax system sends a message that if you work an extra hour, if you take a promotion, you deserve reward? That's why we've put forward our plan to adjust tax brackets for inflation. What I'm also focused on is those young families who I know are doing it particularly tough with childcare costs and housing costs. That's why we've put forward our family boost policy, mm. which will put up to an additional $75 a week into their family budget to help them with childcare costs. 
our priorities are clear mm. and we are focused on working people. But I want to tell you this, if what we want to do in New Zealand is bring the bottom up, we will not do that by taking the top down. Mm. We need people here who are prepared to invest in businesses that employ people and create good jobs. We need people who are going to be creative mm. and entrepreneurial and take risks. We need people who want to bring money here and build things, invest in new technology, mm. invest in new ways of doing things. And those, that creates and those people ultimately, for, for as per your value system, will not pay the same effective tax rate as the middle income... Well, you and I have a disagreement on that because mm. the numbers I look at tell me that they pay about 30% as an average effective yeah. tax rate, whereas a working New Zealander today pays about 18%. But I want to point out, a working New Zealander in 2011 was only paying more like 15% as an average effective tax rate. And that growth in how much tax they're paying has happened under Labor. Would it be good for New Zealand if house prices started going up again? Look... Of course, that depends on who you are and your circumstances. Mm. What, would it be good for young, New Zealand, though, as, as a whole? Well, I think for New Zealand as a whole, our house prices have become inflated over a long period of time, yeah. and that's led to a situation where too many people are locked out of the housing market. But I think of that young couple mm. who scrimped and saved to buy a home a couple of years ago. They watched it collapse in value, and they're so, struggling so to, to be, pay their mortgage and to, to say really to them, clear. I want your house to decline in value yeah. would seem incredibly callous. OK, so I'm not asking about declining. I'm saying mm. would it be good for New Zealand if house prices started increasing again? I think it would be good for New Zealand if house prices stabilised in relation to income. So mm. uh, I think there'll be a lot of New Zealanders who would be hoping that their house would go up in value but would also be concerned we need this to be a place where more people can buy a home. Mm. And, I, and I really believe that. So I want to see... The ratio of income to house prices yeah. stabilises over time. Okay, that means so, so growing incomes and not having these extraordinary leaps in house prices. I think everyone agrees that that instability is not is not good for New Zealand. Mm. So, so what impact will your changes to the bright line test and interest deductibility have on house prices? We think the major impact that those changes will have is they will reduce pressure on rents. Right, and that's really important. But what to will us. they do to house prices? I, I'm not sure that they will have a particularly big impact. Do you on have house any prices. evidence to back that up? No, I, it's not a question that we've looked at. We've been looking well, why, at it. Why wouldn't you look at that? Given, but, given, given you were the one who just said you, you're concerned about New Zealanders who've been locked out of the housing market. Because, because Jack, logic would tell me that I don't think it is going to add to house prices. Actually, when the government introduced those changes, it was right at the time when house prices took off. So there's no mm. evidence that they've had an impact in terms of putting downward pressure on house prices. Well, what there since is those changes have come of, in, we've seen a massive drop in house prices, haven't we? But that happened subsequently. It didn't happen immediately. And what we've also seen is a huge leap mm. in rents paid mm. by New Zealand But you, you don't have evidence. I'm concerned yeah. about that because if you want people to be able to buy a home, they need affordable rent so that they can afford to put a bit aside for a yeah. deposit. So by my sums, your tax cuts will cost uh, more than a billion in government revenue, so from the government's perspective. Let's think about the state of our healthcare system at the moment, the state of our education system, our roading network, the fiscal impact of an ageing population, mm. the impact of climate change, the impending cost of managed retreat. How is it credible to fund tax cuts without significant cuts to services or a substantial increase in borrowing? The first thing we have to do is put this in some context. So the government's tax take since 2017 mm. has increased about $43 billion mm. a year. Our tax package will cost less than $2 billion a year. So you're looking at less than 5% of the overall uh, increase mm. in revenue that the government's had. 
So we believe that we can both afford to fund frontline services in health and education, mm -hmm. ensure good investment in infrastructure, and provide some revenue reduction. The key to it is this, yes, we will have to be a lot more disciplined about government spending, about mm. funding new initiatives here and there. We will have to reduce the cost to government of running itself, of right. paying for consultants, of the number of uh, communications advisors and HR advisors. And the you like. can save $2 billion a year in that. We can certainly make the savings needed to fund our tax programme. Will you stop contributions to the super fund? No, it's not my intention to do that. The way that New Zealand uh, looks at our net, net wealth position now, mm. uh, those contributions to the super fund are looked at in the whole of, of how wealthy mm. our, our government is. And so there is a case for them. I do think it's prudent and responsible to always be looking at, is that the best place to mm. be putting our dollars now? Um, but my intention is that we would continue Okay, just a, I, because we, you want to play the rule-out game for the government with the CGT, so I'm going to play that with the super Well, only fund. because they put out a massive report okay. this week and let their revenue minister go out there and, so, so uh, and raise expectations that, that, Those are questions high. for him and them, and we will be sure, be sure to put them, put them to the government. But just yeah. to be 100% clear, you're ruling out stopping contributions to the super fund. Yeah, I am. Immigration is running at an annualised rate of 100,000 people. It is a significant economic driver, as you know. Where would it be under national? Well, the challenge with giving you a number on this, and I know that you really want us to give you a number on this, and I know Michael Wood hasn't given you one either, the Immigration mm. Minister, is that it's difficult for any government to assess how many New Zealanders will come home in any year, how many people will come from Australia. Mm. Uh, and then when you look at the number of um, workers that are coming in, at the moment, we're running quite flexible schemes. We've got that green list scheme, yep. which we're big supporters of, which says if you're in a skill shortage category, you can come. That's not capped. We wouldn't want to cap that. So right. that inherently means giving you a concrete number is challenging. Okay, okay. Let me ask this then. More or fewer than the current settings are allowing for the at the key, moment? To me, the key consideration... We have to be nimble on this as yeah. where our unemployment level is. Right. Because if we're getting into a situation where many New Zealanders can't get paid work, then I think that's when you've got to tighten up your immigration right. settings and make sure you don't have people uh, from other nationalities, uh, mm. fr from offshore, competing for jobs that Kiwis need. Will you commit to allocating the money required to buy enough carbon credits to meet New Zealand's Paris Agreement targets? Well, look, I am concerned with the way that the government is managing its climate change funds mm. because we have an emissions trading scheme mm -hmm. that I believe is a really smart tool. Yeah. It's bringing in about $1.2 billion a year. It's, yeah. it's variable. But by the Prime Minister's own admission, a number of the schemes that the government's then spending that revenue on have been very, very low impact. OK, that, that's, again, a question for them. I want to know your position. Will you commit to allocating the money required to buy the carbon credits that are required to meet New Zealand's Paris well, we don't know. Targets? We don't know what that will be yet. Jim. No, we don't. This is the whole so, point. So, so you won't commit to it? Well, the way that the Treasury runs its rules and the government is facing exactly... Uh, the same set of rules as we will face, yeah. is that if there is a specific liability mm. that you face, then that must be treated as a, as a contingent liability in the books. Yeah. We will make sure we adhere to all of Treasury's uh, accounting requirements. Right. But that doesn't sound like a commitment. To, oh, will we, will we pay our international obligations on yeah. climate change? Absolutely committed, Jack. Okay. Absolutely committed. Uh, new modelling this week shows the cost of Cyclone Gabrielle to horticulture businesses in Hawke's Bay is $1.5 mm. billion. Mm. 
those, uh, that industry is asking the government in Hawke's Bay for $750 million in assistance. What do you think is an appropriate sum? Well, uh, I haven't had the opportunity to get the calculations that the mm. government will no doubt be going through. What I have had the opportunity to do is talk to our candidates there, uh, Katie Nimmin mm. uh, and Catherine Webb, and what we've seen really clearly is that there are businesses who, if they don't get a bit of assistance now, may never get up and running again. No, it's it's very serious. I mean, that $750 million is a And there's a, a few people who have sum. a role to play. Right. The banks have a role to play yep. because actually I think they should keep the back of those businesses who've actually been good and productive for many years and are going through a rough patch. I think the insurance companies uh, have a role to play. Mm. Uh, and then I think the yours last is resort the, is Yours is the party of regional New Zealand. That's what yep. you've told us. So I want to know what you think is an appropriate sum. Ballpark. An appropriate sum for the total amount of funding for, no, for, for those go, from government to support. Well, as I say, Jack, that will depend on individual circumstances, and I a have a total sum. So, but, so they want but, seven hundred and fifty million. I'm surprised you don't, you haven't focused on this. I mean, this I, is, I am this focused is, on this. So, Jack. so they want seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Yes. Their modelling says that the total sum is going to be one point five billion. They want mm -hmm. government to stump up for half. What's mm -hmm. the National Party's position? Well, we think that the government has a significant role to play. Uh, and we need to make sure that the criteria are fair, mm. that they are evenly What's the total that sum? They are evenly applied. Well, if the businesses are asking for seven hundred and fifty million, then it's not going to be more than that that government should contribute. Could you work with Mr. Peters? Well, uh, we will see whether the voters want him back before we make that decision. Nicola Willis, thank you very much for your time. After the break, it is being hailed as a game-changing medication for weight loss and the treatment of diabetes. Ozempic's just been approved by MedSafe, and we ask an expert what it and other similar drugs mean for the future of healthcare in New Zealand. Hoki mai we welcome back. Seven out of ten adults in counties Manukau are either overweight or obese. One in four Pacifica people and one in six Māori in the region have a body mass index, or a BMI, of more than 35. Research from Auckland University shows excess weight in Aotearoa costs more than $2 billion in direct costs every year. Te Whatu Health New Zealand is launching a first-of-its-kind programme to try and support South Aucklanders who are overweight or obese to lose weight. As part of the 12-week programme, people who are ineligible for bariatric surgery will get wraparound support from a range of experts as they undertake a meal replacement programme. Te Manaki Tua is based on a programme in the UK which helped people into T2 diabetes remission without needing bariatric surgery. I spoke to the programme director, endocrinologist Dr Rinky Murphy and service manager Dr Brian Yao. Counties Manukau has 108,000 people who have a BMI over 35. So that is more than twice the high BMI population of the next highest region in New Zealand. Why is that? Yeah, so there's quite a few um, factors at play. There are um, the ready availability of highly processed, highly palatable and calorically dense foods as a concentration of those food outlets in counties more than anywhere else in the country. There's also mechanisation and automation that affect um, all of us um, everywhere. That means that there's less opportunity for physical activity. You know, some of those socioeconomic factors, the, the cost of living, the, you know, supermarkets, groceries, the price of getting fresh fruit and vegetables versus, you know, quick and easy takeout, 
people are often working long hours to you know put put bread on the table and all of that factors into it you know our bodies are um, uh, um, better at or more permissive for weight gain in any given environment and they're relatively tight on um, or very strongly defending weight loss so in any given environment people have a different tendency to gain weight and so it's not a level playing field and we sometimes fail to appreciate that when we look at um, people and, uh, and think of what is actually at play and whether we put it down to willpower when actually you know, that's what bodies do. Is there a genetic component to this? There certainly is. There are genes that predispose to increased body weight, um, both height and weight, and, uh, and that can determine how hungry or full you feel after a meal. So, tell us, how will Te Manakitua actually work? So, what we're wanting for this service is to offer something that is intensive and we're wanting people who are ready to uh, ex accept meal replacements for a period of 12 weeks. It's an isolating journey to be on meal replacements that are specially formulated with uh, safety and effectiveness. Um, and do that for a period where we get wraparound support around behaviour change, habit formation, things that a value-based system around what people can and can't change or wish to change, such that their transition onto regular food is, um, follows that, um, is very different to the diet that people were previously on. And it's quite motivating to have that 12 weeks where people are losing weight and significant amounts of weight, uh, so that then the work on maintaining that weight loss can begin. And that's all the wraparound in our multidisciplinary team around health psychology, around dietitians, um, uh, and, and really trying to make sure that that transition, we're setting up people to succeed. We want to take the overseas best evidence with, with you know, international literature, kiwifi it in an Aotearoa New Zealand setting, see what works from a, a patient experience point of view, from a, a socioeconomic point of view, from the, the science and the clinical, and really co-design it with you know, our, our people and, and partners with mana whenua, with various stakeholder groups, and then improve the program, as, as Rinki has said, in a, in a you know, iterative cycle, and, and then grow it from there with, with integration, with primary, with community care, and, and kind of leading into a joined up pathway. Obviously in the maintenance phase, when it is hard for some people, we would like to offer medication support as well because that is also another really useful way of maintaining weight. And tell me a little bit more about the results from the UK programme on which this is based. There's two sets of data that's really informed our approach. One is the very low calorie diet meal replacement approach and this was um, taken from the direct study that was published um, about in 2018, um, about six years ago and it uh, demonstrated for the first time that people could actually lose weight and most importantly importantly, uh, maintain weight loss and uh, remission of type 2 diabetes. So prior to the study, we thought that basically only bariatric surgery could achieve remission of type 2 diabetes and maintain significant amounts of weight loss. Um, but as a result of the study, we know that providing people with meal replacements for a period of time where um, people also get wraparound support means that people can lose significant amounts of weight and with assistance and support can help, can maintain that. So transition onto an exit diet that's very different to people's entry diet and physical activity that's in increased. So essentially you have three broad components. 
meal replacements, you have the option of using medication, but you also have wraparound services. And this is the critical element, isn't it? Whereby you offer um, psychotherapy services, you offer um, dietitians, you offer support groups, you offer health coaches, you, you offer a whole, a whole variety of services that support the person as they go through the program. I think we're starting with a, a co-designed process, which is absolutely the philosophy behind Te Whatu Ora and Te Paitata. You know, it's, it's about equity at its heart. So we're, we're starting with the, the person, the, the patient, the family, the, the whānau unit, because there's a lot of environmental supports. And, and we're building this multidisciplinary team around them to because we understand everyone's different, everyone's needs in the community might be different and there is no one-size-fits-all approach because it's not just about you know the genetics or the disease or the medications but it's all of it together you know the the people the whānau the supports the community all supported by a, a multidisciplinary team with the various tools we've talked about with the you know the liquid diet the health coaching it is about empathy ultimately and we have to co-design our entire service around that you know the the mental game the psychosocial the spiritual journey that that's what this is all about and it's empowering our people ultimately I want to ask you about the recent hype over semi-glutide drugs. So for people who haven't heard of them, uh, the best known ones are Ozempic and Wegovy, and they're injectable drugs that have been shown to have a dramatic impact on T2 diabetes by stimulating the pancreas and giving the user feelings of fullness or satiety. In the US, celebrities have been using these drugs for weight loss with quite dramatic results. There's actually a shortage of the drugs at the moment. But Rinky, what do you make of semi-glutides? Yeah, so coming back to the biology of weight gain and weight regulation, um, the semi-glutide comes from a class of agents called GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, GLP-1 is that hormone that is released by our gut that helps us feel full, it slows down our stomach emptying and, um, and it also promotes the release of insulin when glucose is high. So, And we use, to be clear, we do use some GLP-1s in New Zealand at the moment. So uh, these semiglutides are cousins, if you like, of medications that are available in some circumstances in New Zealand. Very much so. Um, that's why they actually started out as an agent to treat type 2 diabetes because it promotes that insulin secretion and regulates blood glucose very effectively. And what's come out of those studies is that weight loss is a very desired um, effect as well as the glucose control and hence many of the GLP-1 receptor agonists that had the FDA approval for type 2 diabetes went on to be tested just for their weight loss benefit. So semaglutide is um, one of the molecules that mimics GLP-1 that we make anyway um, and it's been shown to have significantly high um, effects and 15% body weight loss is the mean in um, individuals who've taken this once weekly injectable, um, which is uh, truly huge. spectacular. Yeah. And so the GLP-1 receptor agonist that we have for type 2 diabetes um, has a, a ceiling of weight loss that's not as high. Are they worthy of the hype? I think they are. They, uh, they're actually heralding in a new generation of medications that are targeting the very hormones that are dysregulated in people who have obesity. So for the first time in our toolkit as endocrinologists who work with trying to supplement hormones when they're deficient, you know, we've got something to offer people. It's certainly not going to solve the obesity epidemic. So, you know, there is a 
multi-sectoral approach to um, reducing obesity with all those environmental, socioeconomic layers that we have to address, and that's not going to be the magic bullet, but it's certainly a very worthy um, component in our treatment of individuals who are suffering with obesity and its complications. How has being involved in this work affected the way you think about how society thinks about weight? Yeah, I think it's a, a really good opportunity to examine our own um, obesity bias um, and uh, exercise both self-compassion in terms of people who are living with obesity, but also uh, think about empathy as we would for people who have a diagnosis of cancer, for example. And that kind of empathy is simply not um, uh, as, uh, as readily available for people who are living with obesity. And it's reflected very much in the way we design our services and the way, you know, everything from um, furniture and, and support and um, funding for research uh, is also allocated. So I think we need to start having that conversation about how much do people um, feel as personal responsibility versus how much is actually uh, tipping into sort of disease and um, uh, unhealthy um, complications. Dr Rinky Murphy and Dr Brian Yao. Te Manakitua means the power is beyond and the programme is set to be up and running in June. Now, if you want to contact the Q&A team, please, Kōrero Mai. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. After the break on Q&A, should universities with poorer students get more government funding? From GI to Oxford and back again, our first Pacifica Vice-Chancellor gives us his vision for equi education equity. Kia ora, welcome back. Damon Salesa grew up in Auckland's Glen Innes, the son of a nurse and a factory worker. He went on to become a Rhodes Scholar and the first Pacifica Vice-Chancellor of a New Zealand university. But since taking over at AUT, university management has faced criticism for its handling of proposed job cuts. Now, a quick note, our conversation was recorded shortly before the job cuts were also proposed at Otago University. And as you'll see, Damon Salesa has some prescient warnings about financial pressures in our tertiary sector. I began by asking him about education in his upbringing. Well, I mean, education made the difference in my life. And, you know, my parents knew that, partly because my mother had come to Auckland from the country to seek it, and my father had come from Samoa where he hadn't even gotten to high school. So education had a real value in, in, in our household. And then, you know, I knew that it was something that, that I enjoyed, but also that delivered opportunity into my life. And so that was something I got from my parents, but I observed around my community as well. Yeah, what, what did you observe? Well, one thing that was very clear in a, in a neighbourhood like Glen Innes is just how tough many families were doing it. And as families got on, they managed to often move on and, and deliver a better life for themselves. And one of the things you could see was that the people who had an education um, were better enable to make choices yeah, and move on. Okay, I'm going to give the back of the envelope CV. So you went to Selwyn College, yeah. then you went to the University of Auckland, and then you went to Oxford, where you became the first Rhodes Scholar of Pacific descent. What did the experience of studying at one of the world's most elite institutions teach you about access to education? <laughs> yeah, you learn some pretty interesting things when you're at a, a university, which has stood at the heart of exclusivity for centuries. And 
you know, you wonder what you're doing there often <laughs> at the beginning, but you also question what education is for. Is education a small thing you, you give out sparingly to the privileged so that they can deepen their privilege and hold on to it? Or is education not really a substance at all, but an ignition that you light people's fire so that they can achieve their talent, so that they can be who, they, who their talent suggests they can be. And Oxford's probably one end of that model. <laughs> and where I'm at now, AUT's at the other, which is, you know, can we build a university that is for people to express their talent, where talent can find opportunity? And, you know, I think Oxford is a way of making the negative <laughs> visible in that sense. But also, you come to appreciate that privilege. When you walk into a library, <laughs> which has you know, 10 million volumes or whatever the Bodleian has, and that every book you can imagine is sitting there in the caverns underground, and you love knowledge and you love reading. It's a special place. But then you turn and you think, oh, what built that college? And you realise it was the, the wealth of slavery, and Rhodes House was built on, on diamond wealth from Southern Africa. And so you realise that privilege comes with a price and that the people who reap the value don't always pay the cost. <laughs> and you know, there, there's a kind of moral or ethical question that, that sits at the heart of even the most privileged education. So did you enjoy studying there? I did enjoy it, um, <laughs> you know, and, and you should enjoy it. I mean, what a wonderful place to learn, be surrounded by other um, deeply committed people to the life of the mind, people who, who come from all around the world, not just from England itself. And then to walk in the sort of steps of, of so many people you've thought of and, and learned of and, and even admired. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was a great time in my life, but it was also a time that had to, to have its own moment and then you move on from there. Yeah, I, and I will ask about moving on in a moment, but I'm just getting a sense you, you felt conflicted in a way. Yeah, and, you know, the Rhodes is, is a great example. You'll know all about the Rhodes Must Fall movement. And if... And most of Broad scholars are kind of reflective, ethical people, and so you're, you're immediately put um, with this question about, you know, where, where the wealth came from. And it's a little bit different now because lots of the original wealth has disappeared, but it does call the question about where the idea came from. And the idea was very different and would not have been meant to include someone like me at the outset, or indeed any woman, for instance. So you have to to sort of reflect on it and make sure you can live with that opportunity. I knew that coming from where I came from, if I was going to get a, a free education, it was going to have to be <laughs> on someone else's, um, at someone else's expense. And, and the fact that it was Rhodes, I came to terms with by thinking through the contributions I intended to make. You've been in this job a year now. So when you accepted the role as AUT's Vice-Chancellor, how did you feel about the role of AUT in the context of New Zealand universities? Yeah, I, I was always attracted to AUT because of its particular commitment to delivering excellence for all students, making sure that wherever you came from, you had the opportunity to meet your potential here at AUT. And it's kind of a little bit different. It's almost the, it's the disruptor of New Zealand universities. You know, it's the youngest, in some ways, others might say it was the brashest, but there's something very distinctive about it. Partly it's the diversity. It is the most diverse New Zealand university in terms of age, um, socioeconomic background and ethnicity. And partly it's the diversity of subjects. It, it teaches subjects that are designed to have impact in people's lives. 
and the way it teaches as well. So 90% of AUT students when they graduate will have had some workforce learning, some workplace learning, some, what I call embodied learning. And so they, they, it's not just what you learn, it's also what you do and the connection of those two things is a kind of deeper, um, impactful learning. I know that foreign students are very important for many New Zealand universities and their funding models. Do you think that foreign students get good value? That is a great question. I, I often think about that question because what this wonderful opportunity where we have eight world-class universities that attract students from across the world has delivered to New Zealand is essentially a subsidy. <laughs> um, you know, and for New Zealand students and for the New Zealand public, it's been a great deal. You know, we, don't pay the full cost of a university education in New Zealand. We're funded at a far lower, lower rate. But these students, many of whom you know, are spending their families' life savings on an education and come here, we really owe them a, a great opportunity. We need to make sure that they have not just a, a great qualification, which they do get in New Zealand, but a great experience. I just think we could do better. And, and you know, I want those students to to go away if they go away or stay and just be the most powerful ambassadors for New Zealand. And I think what we've seen is that those people have made a huge difference in world politics. You know, if you think about, for instance, the education we gave Pacific leaders um, after the Second World War led to a generation of prime ministers around the Pacific who had this deep affection for New Zealand, for its places, for its educational system, but above all for its people, which allowed New Zealand to have an influence that that it, it, it didn't deserve by the amount of investment it made or the size of New Zealand. And that's how education works. It changes people, you know, one person, one whanau at a time. As a result of losing foreign students, AUT has had to announce 230 job losses. Those are teaching jobs, academic staff, researchers. At a time when borders have finally reopened, foreign students can finally return, how do job cuts undermine the perception of AUT? The challenge that we've faced, and, and you know, when you become a, a vice-chancellor or a leader, the last thing you ever want to do is lay off um, your staff. So it is very much a last step that you take. But the challenge around the university is we have a three-year relationship with students. So when students aren't here the first year, they're also not here the second and third year. And so the the deep cost of COVID is not a one-year thing and it, it won't be a one-year recovery. And you know, the decision was made here at AUT not to um, lay off staff when COVID began. But that essentially meant that at some point the financial challenge would have to be met. And you know, it is a, it's disappointing to me that we've been put in this place. But as we look around our city and nation at this moment, we know that we're not alone, that the, the cost of COVID, the cost of the rising cost of living has really transformed many of the fundamental things about the way we, we run many of our institutions and businesses. The flip side to it, though, is that in trying to attract students back, you want to give them the best education possible. Absolutely. And when they Google AUT right now, they see researchers are going, they see teacher staff are going, they see academic staff are going, and they think, well, maybe AUT isn't going to give me the same level of education that I would have expected five years ago. Yeah. Well, it is our intention that they won't see that. I mean, we've, we've made sure they that, will we can, though, at the moment, that we've right? delivered, well, that they won't see a decline in quality. I mean, one of the challenges we also face is that what students want 
and what industry needs changes. And so universities will have to be institutions of change to respond to communities and um, workforce needs. And that means for specialised staff who can't just simply move from one place to another, that there will be a process of change and that we need our universities to be responsive and agile. So we will see change and we're already seeing that AUT is not alone. We were the first out of the universities to experience that and to make the decision that we could wait no longer. But this year we're going to see many of the universities, most of them, um, in very difficult places. Um, and some hard decisions will have to be made, like we're seeing across the tertiary sector, not just within the universities. The process has been a bit messy, to put it kindly. So AUT's faced criticisms for breaking news of redundancies to individuals via email. Uh, you faced a successful legal challenge and have had to pause some of your plans. Why, why has it been poorly handled? Well, one of, part of it is the challenge of at a, being at an institution which hasn't undertaken this level of change before. And it's been great that AUT's been the, the great story in, in university education. We've grown, you know, the most recent university grown the fastest. But we do have an agreement with the union which didn't present a straightforward pathway to do this cleanly and with the speed that is able to be achieved at other um, institutions. Uh, we followed legal advice. Um, the advice that we followed clearly differed from others. Um, we sought to um, enact our, our AUT values of tika pono aroha. Um, I'm not satisfied with the way things turned out, but I am satisfied that we set out on this pathway to, it, to do it to the best of our ability. Um, and you know, the, the, the experience of some of our staff, now the hardest thing is to lose your job um, and a relationship with an employer. So we, that is a very deep and um, important commitment that we make. But we also make a commitment to the New Zealand taxpayer, to our students, to our communities to handle New Zealand taxpayer money diligently and carefully. And this is the challenge that I and others will be facing this year. Yeah, how bad is it going to be for other universities? Oh, that's really an issue for them, but I, I know that we are all sharing the pain. And, and I think the pain is a very real pain, and it's a New Zealand pain, where we did lock down for um, you know, over three months in Auckland, and that that impact of disrupted education has changed the lives of tens of thousands of young people. And it's turned many of them off education, where some because they had to go get employment, some because you know, education isn't really about staring at a screen solely for long periods of time. And so we've seen a significant downturn in the number of New Zealanders who wish to go to university. And while that's bad for universities, it's worse for New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand needs a highly educated, highly motivated, innovative, world-class um, workforce. And you know, this will change that. I want to come back to that point in just a minute. Just to pick up finally on that other universities point, would it be fair to say that you'd expect, as a percentage of the workforce, other universities to be in a comparable position to AUT? Yeah, I mean, most universities have a roughly similar um, model, which is that you know student fees and government contribution are the largest single support for the university. Ours is unusually high at AUT, which is part of our challenge. Um, but that will mean that you know, some things can't be delayed for very long. And so the, the, the challenge for universities 
you know, which are great at many things, will be how to do this, um, you know, and, and at what scale it can be done and indeed what scale it can be avoided. Yeah. Do you take responsibility personally for the discontent amongst some of your staff? The Vice-Chancellor should take responsibility for everything. Um, and you know, it, it pains me that our staff have been through this. I think there's a strong understanding amongst our staff that it was necessary. They understand the financial rationale. And there's also a strong sense amongst our staff that it was not what we hoped it would be as a process. And I think you know, we, I have to work and our team, our leadership team has to work to support our staff to make sure that this wonderful institution, you know, one of New Zealand's largest universities, is going to be able to run at full speed just at this wonderful moment where the students have come back and you've seen the, the life around campus has helped to remind us what we're here for. You talked about the number of New Zealanders who have been turned off tertiary education who might otherwise have been here studying. How do we bring them back? That's a great question. I, I hope that they're not turned off. I think that they've been forced to make um, different decisions because of the current pressures. One is, you know, this period of, of um, lost learning. You know, this period where education is always about the academic side, but it's holistic. You know, it is about friendship and collegiality. It's about the kind of um, all those other great things that happen in schools and in universities. So. Some of them may well come back. The others who have had to go into the workforce, not because they want to, but because that's how their whānau makes ends meet. You know, we have a, we have a different challenge there. You know, both of those are challenges, but they're different ones, and we have to meet that in a in a much broader way. I think. I want to ask about Kiutiki Tai, which is your student success plan. That's an alternative model for ways that government would fund universities. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we're not receiving any more money to deliver this program. And as the university, which has the highest proportion of um, students from the lowest socioeconomic deciles, that's a particular challenge. But our approach to is not just about students from the lower socioeconomic end. It's about all students who need some support to reach their academic potential. And that includes many students from the other end of town, for instance, who didn't have a great schooling experience and, and their year 12 and year 13 don't really speak to their potential. And what we know is that many of the reasons that students leave education are not educational in their nature. They're about the experience itself, they're about social support, they're about cohort building, about relationships, about for want of a bus pass, you know, and we, we just need to understand that small efforts in the right way can really support quite different outcomes. And by building or rebuilding a university that is focused on that student experience, so students don't have to learn the university, which, you know, and so, from some uses an arcane kind of European model that goes back centuries, where we actually present ourselves in a way that students can instantly make sense of and that they don't have to go from here to there, but they just can get what they need um, where they need it and when they need it. To be really clear though, would changing the way universities are funded from the government end benefit AUT? Oh, there's no question that the current funding model does not recognise the true value of, a, of an educational experience at AUT. So when you uplift a student 
um, who may be the first in their family, and, and nearly half of AUT students are the first in their family to go to university, the first generation to come to university, and we deliver them into a, you know, a high contributing, high paying job, that is the greatest outcome um, I could imagine. I, I'm, I'm proud when, when our staff and our university does that. But we're funded the same whether that, that is a person who's the first in generation or if they're the child of neurosurgeons. And no one can look me in the eye and say that's the same distance travelled, <laughs> you know. Um, so I do think that there is, we could do a better job at recognising that the distance travelled, I call it, or the value add of a university, if you want a kind of financial model. But particularly, we could do a better job at recognising um, that at the moment our system suggests when from year one to 13, we have a, a funding model that, that indexes your deprivation and Talking about the yeah. Yeah. yeah, the, the equity index that's replaced the decile system. So we acknowledge that, that there's different levels of preparedness and opportunity, but somehow that at year 13 that finishes, <laughs> and that when you come to university the world is equal, and I, that has not been my experience. Yeah. Your predecessor was in the role for 18 years. You going to be in there for the same time? No, I'm not going to be here for 18 years. <laughs> How long are you going to be here? Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say. Um, yeah, no, I, I think we've seen that the... the um, time of service of vice chancellors is decreasing um, because the nature of the job has changed. You know, the, the vice chancellor is both an academic leader and a CEO, and the CEO but, but is now probably an equivalent piece. We're running these major institutions, and I think, you know, th there's a period at which, you know, it's time to, to make the pass and put someone into a gap, and so I'll be cognizant of that. So. Well, I'm just going to put an arbitrary year on it for the sake of this question. Let's say 2030. Give me a vision. What will AUT be to New Zealand in the year 2030? Oh, I think AUT will be even more clearly New Zealand's University of Technology. Every one of those students coming out of AUT will be, have experienced a, a work placement and will arrive in a job, which we're very close to there now. Um, I think the bit I'm really um, excited by is that contribution AUT can make in the innovation and research space and in partnerships. So we'll be in these critical partnerships to support New Zealand industry, New Zealand business. We're already the key workforce provider for, um, one of the key workforce providers for the Te um, So through our partners, we will be changing New Zealand. And through that contribution and that research and innovation space, we will be uh, remaking Auckland. And that bit is truly exciting. And we need lots more support around that. That's one of the missing pieces of the New Zealand puzzle. We don't do enough research. We don't do enough innovation. That is AUT Vice-Chancellor Damon Salesa. Ko motu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi kia koutou inga karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.